Welcome to Murder Most Foul, a podcast devoted to exploring famous murder cases of our time, some solved, some unsolved, but all fascinating and guaranteed to raise the hairs on the back of your neck. I'm your host, Jim Solonowski. Today's episode... Justice delayed, but not denied. In the winter of 1982, in Brighton, New York, a bedroom suburb of Rochester, Jim Krosnick came home from work to discover his wife Kathleen lying in bed, dead, with an axe lodged in her head. Their three-and-a-half-year-old daughter, Sarah, was unharmed, alone in the cold home. She had attempted to dress herself and make herself breakfast, which was evident by the cereal strewn all over the kitchen floor. For over 30 years, no one was charged with Kathy's murder until the Brighton Police Department collaborated with the FBI to reopen the case in 2015 with their sights set on Krosnick as the primary suspect. It wasn't until 2022, after COVID loosened its grip on the city, did a trial ensue and justice finally prevailed. Dennis O'Brien was a local news producer at the time of the brutal murder, who not only covered the case until it quickly went cold, but remained committed for over 40 years, hoping to see justice finally realized. I was sitting in the newsroom uh, watching the early news, and I had behind me police scanners and uh, started to pick up, uh, as did other people, the amount of activity taking place over in Brighton. And when you heard the call for the ME van, um, it was interesting because it wasn't, you began to suspect that something had happened that wasn't ordinary. Right from the beginning, it was just such a horrific tragedy that a woman, a mother, a wife, asleep in her bed was attacked, it seemed, randomly by someone holding an axe and crashing it into her head. And meanwhile, uh, an equal part of that tragedy was the fact that her three-and-a-half-year-old daughter, Sarah, was in the house just down the hall in her bedroom. And the body allegedly wasn't discovered until the husband, Jim Krausneck, came home at the end of the day. Uh, he had a job as an economist at Eastman Kodak. He came home uh, somewhere in the neighborhood of four to five, and um, the house was dark and it was cold, and he was getting no response, and he yelling for his wife and he goes upstairs discovers the body 
immediately grabs his daughter from down the hall and they run across the street. Those neighbors call the police. He's extremely upset. So that begins uh, a 40 year tale of one of the most incredible cold cases and one of the most odd, unusual endings to it that you can ever come across. You know, if you want to imagine the most horrible thing to take place uh, in the most unlikely of settings, et cetera, this would have been that story. When the, when the police walked in, the Brighton police walked in, they saw uh, material, a set of china, et cetera, on the uh, dining room floor, stacked up neatly as though it was about to be uh, carted out. What the police discovered was that, yes, a window had been broken to gain entrance. Uh, it had been broken with a wood maul used for splitting wood. And then the axe used in that case was the murder weapon. And these came from the garage. What in the world could be the motive for doing a robbery and then, like, before you leave, let's go see if there isn't somebody upstairs. And, uh, you know, we'll take care of them if we have to. So what they ended up doing was uh, figuring out that that was supposedly what happened, that the alleged robber got the goods that he was looking for, was ready to take them out, and then for unknown reasons, goes upstairs. Now, I've been in the house and I shot a story in that house uh, in 2005, uh, a lengthy story by TV standards. Um, I was originally going to be doing an entire half-hour episode of the show I was working on at the time, A Current Affair 2. And um, the people who were living in the house in 2005 kindly allowed us full access to the house for an entire day. We went in, we saw the layout, we figured out how to shoot it, what to say where, etc., and we ended up doing a walkthrough of the reporter saying, okay, entrance was gained back here, then you walk through here, and here's where in the dining room the uh, robbery was supposed to be finalized, the, the material was gathered, and then you go around the corner and up the stairs and to your left and into the bedroom where Kathy Krausnack is sleeping. It is entirely unimaginable why a robber would then decide to up the ante to murder for no reason. Goes up there, discovers her, and takes the axe from the garage. Now, how you would know that there's an axe in the garage, etc., that's odd too. But goes and gets the axe, goes upstairs, and then kills Kathy with a single blow to the head, and then leaves. 
little Sarah, three and a half years old, is in her bedroom and she's asleep at the time. Unfortunately, she wakes up at some point and wonders, where's mommy? What's going on? The mind is sometimes kind to us. It, and what it does is it says, we won't let you remember this completely. She told police in one of the very few statements, and it occurred that night, I believe, that she had witnessed a bad man uh, in mommy's bed. She didn't recognize her mother, and I've seen the crime scene photos, and you wouldn't. The cops immediately start looking into the robbery scenario, and almost right away, they determined that this was a staged setup that there was, uh, there was nothing real about this robbery. There was no robbery. There was no attempted robbery. Then somebody must have meant to kill Kathy. And they began an extensive search of the background of Jim, of Kathy, of the neighborhood, of uh, all kinds of possibilities as, as you naturally would. And at the same time, uh, what ends up happening is that Jim, police are interviewing him at the neighbor's house, and he's saying, uh, you know, I've, I've got to take my little daughter away from here, let her get some sleep, etc. Can we continue this in the morning? One other thing that uh, happened was that he called his parents in Detroit, where they both came from, suburb of Detroit. And the parents immediately got in the car and drove to Rochester. They arrived and said, look, officer, we'll pick this conversation up in the morning. We're going to go to a local motel and spend the night and get Sarah to bed. So the cops weren't happy with that, but there wasn't much choice. The next morning when the detectives went to the motel, the, the room hadn't even been used. Uh, they, they had not slept in the room. They took off and went back to Detroit. There are all kinds of rationales that can be used saying, look, they were upset. They just wanted to get someplace away from all of the hassle, etc." But that began soon afterward, the reluctance and the um, refusal of Jim, the husband, to talk to the police. Uh, they had to go to him and they did. And by that point, he had a an attorney, Michael Wolford, and uh, Wolford, when he got involved, was of the opinion, you're starting to ask questions about Jim uh, that I don't like. So charge him or, or, or leave him alone. They certainly couldn't charge him at the time, so um, they left him alone. Uh, they kept trying. But he just gave the standard answers. I wasn't there. I had no idea what happened. And you cannot talk to my daughter. Sarah was never 
interviewed by the police. That was uh, a big problem as well. A week later, I just came across this morning an article from exactly a week later, the 23rd of February in 1982. And I remember myself working in the newsroom at WOKR. Rumors were so heavy that Jim was going to be arrested, yet it didn't happen. Jim had come in apparently to uh, basically get his stuff moved out of the house in Brighton and sent back to Detroit. He was with his attorney and they never spoke. It was and this anticipation of, oh my gosh, they're going to charge him, uh, didn't happen. And that was one week afterward. And then at that point, things began to, in effect, cool down because they pursued every other lead that went nowhere. And then what do you do? Even when reporters would go on the fifth anniversary, the 10th anniversary, et cetera, or in between, uh, print reporters, TV reporters, uh, in some cases, he would come out of the store where he was working, his parents' uh, furniture store, and he would hold a short interview on the sidewalk, but say absolutely nothing. And so as time went on and the police ran into dead end after dead end, it became much more difficult and frustrating for them to continue the investigation. They never gave up. These guys were trying their best to, how do we get around this? How do we get this thing going again? And uh, when I did the story in 2005, because I tried to sell it to every, every show I worked on, there's a story here, and I have a strong feeling about who it is that did this. Obviously, I cannot prove it, but I think just presenting the story might prompt the authorities to have more evidence to get going. In 2005, I have went up to Michigan to talk to Kathy's family um, and did an interview with Kathy's sister in particular, Annette. Now suddenly I was hearing from the people on the victim's side and discovering how incredible their grief was, their frustration was, their anger was, that they had just been through so much with no relief in sight. Then 2015, 10 years after I had done the TV story, I said, you know, if nothing else, I want to get an update on where everything is. And I called Brighton Police Department and they had changed chiefs and uh, spoke to uh, Mark Henderson, the new chief. Immediately, I knew that Mark was determined that if there was anything he could do at all. And he had said, my predecessor, Chief Vocal, was in agony to the day he left the, this office and retired, said, 
apparently to uh, Chief Henderson, stay on this. This this has got to get solved. What ended up happening from my point of view was that I said, you know, I did a story on this in 2005, a TV story. And he said, you don't have a copy of that, do you? I said, I can get one. And he said, would you do me a big favor and send that to me? I let Mark know, here's how to contact Annette. And he said, I will call her and I will do it very soon. Chief Henderson says to the family, look, I know there is a history of dead ends and lack of movement. We are going to give it our all. We want to revive this case and see if we can't finally bring it to a conclusion. We can't guarantee a conclusion. We just want to see justice done one way or the other. Mark flew out to uh, Detroit, met with them in person. And so I knew that if anything was going to happen, now would be the time. One thing I was happy to hear from a very personal standpoint was that he used the story that I sent him, the recording, to present to people, the DA, the FBI, the task force that he set up in his own department, as far as here's the background of the story, here's what we're talking about, and we'll pick up after we look at it. So it made for a good introduction, and I was happy that there was a positive benefit of that, even though it was years later, it still had value, and it still helped in terms of explaining the story in a very concise fashion. One by one, these people, these organizations, these uh, task force get set up, get involved, and start their work. In the process, people go out to Washington uh, near Seattle, where at that point Jim Krausnick was living. He was the vice president uh, of a, a lumber company, a large lumber company, Weyerhaeuser. He was married to wife number three. Actually, I think number four, but uh, regardless, he was married and um, he was successful and comfortable and didn't expect that suddenly there would be a knock on the door saying, we want to talk to you about the death of your first wife. That alone must have really been a, a, an incredible blow to him. When I did the story in 2005, I called, I had tracked him down, and believe me, he, he had moved around. He was in Arizona and California and uh, Washington and Detroit and I think Utah at one point. Anyway, he was all over the place. At this point, he was in California. I found out his number, and I called, and I left a message saying who I was and that I just wanted to speak to him. And on a Saturday morning, 
Now, this is probably about 10 o'clock, between 9 and 10, my time. So it's three hours earlier at that point because he was living in California. And he calls me completely unexpected. And you don't have uh, caller ID at that point, et cetera. You just phone rings, you pick it up and say hello. I pick it up. And I said, hello. And he said, is this Dennis O'Brien? I said, yes. And he said, this is James Krausnack. I believe you called for me. And I was just, I was astounded. It was a cold Saturday morning and I'm standing there having coffee. I'm, you know, practically doing a spit take. And I said, Jim, thank you very much for calling me back. I have a few questions and I wonder if we couldn't arrange a time and place to do an interview. No, I don't think so. Uh, I, I, I don't see any value in that, any worth. Now, that's a somewhat legitimate answer in the sense that, uh, you know, who am I and what are we going to do that hasn't been done already kind of deal. He did agree to at least continue this brief conversation. When I was speaking to him, I realized this guy really has it down. And it's probably even easier to do over the phone in terms of maintaining a particular story. He said, uh, oh, it was a terrible tragedy. I love my wife. And, uh, you know, no way to replace her. And, um, you know, I wanted to protect my daughter. That's why I never wanted uh, her to be a part of this. You know, what did she know? She was only three and a half. And had this awful experience. I just wanted to shield her and so on. He said that, you know, he, he was certainly hoping that someday he would get a call from the police saying, guess what? We've, we've got our person. Um, and, but he hasn't heard anything and he gave up after a while, you know, being in touch. Well, he didn't ever try and keep in touch from what I understand. Uh, they always had to go to him if they wanted to speak to him in any way. But he was very personable. He was um, upbeat. From that point on, I don't think anybody ever tried to get a hold of him. Instead, years and years later, what happens, but there's a knock at the door and there are the authorities say, we want to talk to you about the murder case of your first wife, Kathy. The stories that have been done since on like Dateline and 48 Hours and 2020, etc., they have some of that conversation when the cops go to the house and speak to Jim. And Jim catches on that this isn't going well and that they're not buying the story or reluctance to talk about the story. In fact, at some point, he says, you know, I, I think you think I did it. And one of the uh, police says, yeah, basically, he says, yeah, I think you did it. At that point, you know, boom, he clams up completely, and uh, which is certainly his right. Okay, so then we get to a point where eventually it goes to the grand jury in Rochester, and um, 
through excellent work on their part and uh, bolstered by the work of the FBI and all of the investigation and interviews that they have done all around the country, they managed to get an indictment of murder against uh, James Krausneck. And the murder trial is expected to start in uh, 2020. And then the pandemic. Just the indictment alone, though, was for the family of the victim, Kathy's family. It was a reason to finally smile and somewhat celebrate Look, we got this far. At least now we're going to actually have a trial. And we don't know how it will turn out. This is a real tough case to make after 40 years. But we're thrilled that we've got this chance at last. Because they have been living with this for the entire time. So the pandemic is a real tough thing. Because... It slows down the momentum and and just the timetable alone of getting this thing taken care of um, and reaching a conclusion one way or the other. Another person involved in this is Kathy's father, um, and he's in his 90s at this point. Everybody is thinking, oh my gosh, what do we do? We've got to hold on however long until this pandemic is over and we're able to resume an in-person trial. And, you know, we hope that Robert, the father, will be certainly healthy and able to come, etc. So everybody's nervous for almost two years. Then we get to the trial. So the trial finally gets underway on September 6th, 2022, and one of the expert witnesses called was Dr. Michael Bodden, famous for, among other things, uh, testifying in the O.J. Simpson trial. Uh, He opined that the window of when death might have occurred should be expanded uh, to include an earlier time, thereby allowing Jim to have done the deed, cleaned up, and gotten to work. Of course, the defense was all over that theory. Not that that really mattered, because as I remember, the original window was uh, still wide enough uh, to allow for Jim being the murderer. And aside from just attacking the science, uh, the defense also had um, an alternative uh, theory of the crime, didn't they? Yeah, yeah, definitely. By the end of the trial, uh, and certainly afterward, after the conviction, the defense was continually pointing an accusing finger at a dead known killer in the neighborhood whose name was Ed Larrabee. And they were saying, look, you can't tell us that this guy who lived, you know, they would say minutes away. Well, minutes can be 60 minutes, you know, but he wasn't that far away. He did live uh, relatively close. Um, but he had no connection with them whatsoever. Um, and yes, he was a convicted killer. He had raped the women he killed. 
Ed Larrabee, I think it was 2014, uh, right around the area where I kind of come back into it, somewhere in that time frame, he says, oh, I did that. I, I did that murder. Boom. All of a sudden, everybody's got to like, what? Okay. Wait a minute. Are you sure? And they have to investigate, obviously. And what the DA ended up saying was basically garbage. The guy was in prison for killing this woman that he had raped uh, in her apartment. So they were making the connection that because he lived close by, maybe he somehow saw her one day and decided that uh, she would be the next. But now he's in prison. He's going to be in prison the remainder of his life. And he wants a bargaining tool to improve his conditions, you know, better meals, a bigger cell, whatever. So he says, I did it. And the police go and they interview him. And he is off on every fact imaginable. You know, he had uh, Kathy as being basically short and overweight and a certain kind of hair and uh, this and that. None of it made sense. Not only that, but uh, an important point is that when the cops investigated and, and pursued that, they looked through the house for any prints. There was nothing. And I remember doing an interview with one of the detectives who had investigated the case. And I said, wow, so, uh, so no, no prints of the uh, assailant. He said, no, no prints of anybody. That house had been absolutely clean, top to bottom. Even kitchen cabinets, doorknobs, etc. There was nothing. Now, that's odd in itself. Why wouldn't there be fingerprints from Jim and uh, the rest of the people? But this thing was super cleaned up. The, the drains have been apparently running to get any kind of uh, blood out of that. Uh, these things were taken care of, either that or he would have had to have left covered in blood. So, um, and, and again, Ed Larrabee was not known for being this uh, very careful kind of killer. Else, I got to point out this again through my Wikipedia stuff. He claims he raped her. And there was, even without DNA, wasn't it clear that she had not been sexually assaulted? She had not been. She had not been. You'll find Ed Larrabee's name still coming up, uh, as, you know, the basis of the appeal, etc. Why, you know, why, why did they say that he was guilty when you have this other person who said he did it? Now, clearly, um, Jim Krosnick had uh, opportunity. He lived in the house. He had means, which, of course, was his own acts. Uh, uh, let's talk a little bit about motive, though not necessary to convict. Um, why don't we get a little background on what might have been the motive? I don't think um, Kathy was thrilled to move to Rochester, um, especially at that point meaning in the middle of the winter. 
you know, winters in Rochester just aren't what they are in many other places. Previous to moving to Rochester, they were in Lynchburg, Virginia, where Jim was teaching at Lynchburg College. And it was there that Jim had said that he had completed his doctoral degree in economics at the uh, University of Colorado, I believe, in Fort Collins. And so that was his first lie. He hadn't. He, he wasn't short by that much. He had, from what I understand, from what I was able to find out, he completed his dissertation. And as is generally the case with a thesis or dissertation, you get it back and people say, okay, overall, but we want to know more about this, less about that, and change this. So you need to make some changes. It never happened. Jim got a, a teaching job in Lynchburg before uh, he left Colorado with kind of a dismissive wave to Colorado saying, I'll, yeah, I'll, I'll get back to you. I'll finish this up right now. I've got to get to Virginia to my new job. Now, he was hired in Virginia on the basis of having a PhD in economics, but quickly became friends with the head of the department, and Kathy became friends with the wife, and they, they had a nice environment and relationship. And by that point, uh, Sarah's a little girl, and so everything is, is kind of nice. But from, again, my understanding was that Kathy wanted something more, was hoping that Jim would be able to use the PhD to propel himself to a better paying job. And apparently he looked, found one was being advertised at Kodak as a mid-level management position, and he applied and he got it. So it ends up being a situation where Jim is working and Kathy isn't all that happy, but I think that she would have been okay had she weathered the winter and then got into it, made more friends. However, something happened. And what that was, was that Kodak said when they hired him, fine, everything looks good except for your PhD. We need the confirmation from University of Colorado that you received your PhD. And he said, oh, yeah, 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 I'll, I'll, I'll certainly get in touch with them and get back to you. And weeks go by, a couple of months go by. And finally, I think uh, Kodak said to, to Jim, you know, we still haven't gotten anything from University of Colorado. And, and he says... Basically, oh, well, then I'll, I'll get on their backs and, you know, make sure that this thing gets out to you. More time goes by. I don't know how much more. And they put a deadline on it. The clock is ticking. And Jim knows that in a matter of days, he's going to be unemployed in Rochester with an unhappy wife and a young child in the middle of winter.
it, it's hard to get into anybody's mind, certainly the mind of somebody who does something like this. And oftentimes the uh, criticism of the case against Jim Krausnack is very basic and simple. If this man did this heinous crime, could he live a normal life before and almost a normal life after? And no one knows the answer to that. And it wasn't a crime of passion. It had to have been thought out. It had to have been planned to whatever degree it was, because everything after the fact uh, was so carefully executed. I, I have a whole um, scenario in my head as to what actually took place. And what, what I think happened was that if he was clothed, he got rid of those in a bag. And again, things are very different now, uh, four years later, than they were at the time of the crime. So it would have been not as difficult to throw away uh, a shirt and a pair of pants, etc., um, on your way to work in different uh, trash cans, etc. So you, you could have gotten rid of that stuff and no one would have known. If you literally, as he did, just show up at work and then leave work at your appointed times, who's to know anything different has happened? He ends up doing the crime, cleaning thoroughly the house, probably at that point staging the robbery after the fact, after the murder. He had a plan in mind. Maybe it wasn't as incredibly sophisticated as we might imagine it to be, but whatever it was, it served the purpose. And he knew enough that if they do find my prints anywhere, that's to be understood. I live here. I do this. I do that. I, yeah, I remember picking up the axe last winter and uh, so forth. So um, he, he had his bases covered. He says to himself, just this once. That's all it's going to take. It'll be, it'll be terrible. It'll be horrible. But when it's done, it's done. And then life will move on. It will be better than, somehow in his mind, better than facing the consequences of being exposed as a liar for all these years to my wife, to my employers, and to my, the rest of my family and any friends, etc. And then the embarrassment of probably the marriage breaking apart and the custody of the child and the support. But what other choice do I have? Somehow in his mind, that's the kind of uh, point he had reached. He says, I, I really don't have a choice. This isn't going to go well either way. And I would prefer that it just be ended. How long was the, I know it was a jury trial, and how long was the deliberation? Um, the trial lasted somewhere in the neighborhood of four weeks. 
the deliberations were relatively short, uh, within a couple of days, two to three days, I believe. What ended up happening was that he received a guilty verdict, and it came out afterward the jury didn't buy the stage break-in. That was more important to them. Despite somewhat dry testimony at different times, that was a very attentive jury. These people, not necessarily on the edge of their seat, but they were definitely paying attention, every one of them. They were really impressive to me uh, that there were and some people taking notes, etc. They were taking their jobs seriously. And so I felt confident just based on that single day that when it came time for deliberations, these people would know what they were talking about, would have specific questions, would have um, very pinpointed debates as far as, well, if that's true, can this be true? I was very impressed with uh, what I read their comments were after the fact and just watching them on the basis of a few hours in the courtroom myself. They came to the conclusion that I've been quoted as saying from the beginning, it made no sense. This entire case made no sense other than it had to have been Jim Krausnick who killed his wife. It just, none of it, no matter how far afield you went and tried to bring in Ed Larrabee or try to uh, say, you know, it's somebody we don't even know yet, but it, it, it's still out there. No, none of it made sense. And uh, I was so, in a way, relieved to realize that was the telling factor with the jury, that they looked at this and they said, nope. It had to be him because, honestly, and, and you'll see it in any account of the trial, this was a verdict based on circumstantial evidence. There was no smoking gun. There was no gun. <laughs> um, it, it just was a matter of put together what you know, what we can prove, what you can see in front of you, and what you understand reality is does anything else fit together no now we can at this point <clears throat> paraphrase um uh sherlock holmes uh if and i'm paraphrasing if uh you've eliminated everything else whatever's left has to be the truth and that's what they did yes that that would be a perfect summary of it there there was really no alternative uh, explanation as far as what happened. So he's convicted and sent off. Uh, they did obviously set up an appeal. So uh, what's next? Well, in a way, it's bad news. And um, it's understandable, but you really have to make sure that you look at the results of what we're going to talk about right now in a certain way. And that is that from the beginning, I remember Chief Henderson saying and others saying as well, we're looking here for justice. 
We don't know what form it will take, but that's what we're looking for. That's what we've been striving for. In America, justice has certain requirements and certain protections. What ends up happening is just this, in many ways, bizarre ending to a case that was already as unusual as you could ever imagine in a, in a movie, in a book, etc. Everything seemed to be positive. The Schlosser family was relieved, and, and I remember seeing uh, Annette coming out of the courtroom after the verdict and going, justice has been reached. And uh, it just, I mean, it was, it was so exhilarating to think, oh, my God, imagine that. Who would have thought 40 years after the fact that it would turn out this way? And um, so there was, at that point, justifiable celebration on the part of the uh, the family and friends and anybody who came to follow the case and believed as I did. And then in sentencing, it was the same way. Uh, Jim got up and said, no, I never could have done it. I never would have done it. The daughter, Sarah, by this point, a grown woman, a mother herself of two children, got up and defended her father. Um, and I remember Annette saying, God, from one of the earliest conversations I had with her years ago, that the part of the tragedy of this was not only the loss of her sister, but the, in a sense, abduction of Sarah, that she was taken out of their lives and told a story that wasn't true and wasn't allowed to ask questions or be with her mom's family. I, I remember Annette saying after the trial that we, we hope we can reestablish communication with uh, Sarah uh, and Annette had said previous to the verdict, she had told Sarah directly in an elevator on their way to the courtroom, regardless of how this turns out, we still want you in our lives. Please, let's see if we can't make that happen. Um, and Sarah's reply was something along the lines of, well, you know, thank you for that, and we'll, we'll see. Jim Krausnack will be in prison for the remainder of his life because the judge gave him the maximum sentence, 25 to life. It was not long afterward, I mean, a matter of a few months, and in a conversation with somebody that I got to know uh, at the trial, she said, it's hard to believe, but guess what happened? And I said, what? And he said, Jim Krausnick has cancer. His cancer was fast moving. And in a matter of weeks, they moved him a couple of times to better hospital facilities in different prisons. Essentially, at the last one, he was in a hospice, literally waiting to die. In the meantime, the defense lawyer started the 
appeal process. And so that was underway. And um, Jim dies. At that point, there is uh, a doctrine of abatement. And uh, a lawyer friend of mine sent me this yesterday. Doctrine of abatement is basically that when the defendant dies, it can be after the uh, verdict, it can be before the verdict, it can be by his own hands, it can be by natural causes, it can be by accident. The appeal process at that point is untenable. You can't continue. Krausnick's family, his wife and daughter, they, they wanted the appeal process to continue posthumously to clear his name. And as it was, or as it turns out, his name is, in effect, in a legal way, already cleared. Because when it goes back to the trial judge after the Supreme Court rules, okay, it's um, a case of abatement by death. You can't continue the appeal process. The person involved is deceased. So on that basis, as much as we may not like it, the indictment and conviction are essentially thrown out. So, Dennis, you have lived with this disturbing murder case for over 40 years. The case is now finally closed. What are your thoughts now that the story has come to a conclusion? I guess um, good news here for the family of uh, Kathy is that he died in prison as a convicted killer. And that's a fact. This particular case was such a tragedy from the moment it occurred. And it was something that for some reason struck a personal chord. The night that the murder occurred, and I overhear it, uh, and my news organization goes out and starts covering it as everybody did. You're just shaking your head like, did this really happen? And did it happen here in a place you would least expect it to? Then the next thing, which in many ways should have been the first thing, and who did it happen to? And as soon as you discover Kathy Schlosser and a, a young wife, she was 29 at the time, mother to three-and-a-half-year-old Sarah, she, she was like all of us. She had a, a good childhood. She had, uh, you know, loving parents, uh, brothers and sisters. She had uh, family and friends. And she grew up in an area that was kind of like every town USA. Her life meant something. And not just to her family and her friends, but to the rest of us in the sense that Kathy was a victim when there was no reason for her to be a victim. She did nothing wrong. And her death was one of those cruel fates whereby 
the wrong person comes into your life, something happens, and then that wrong person takes your life. There's no getting around the finality of a tragedy like that and the terrible toll it takes on the family. It never goes away and it hurts just as much on day 4,000 as it did on day one. It just is so painful. When I did an interview with Annette and uh, Kathy's mom, the two of them said that, you know, that this was something that haunted them, that this was something that was part of their everyday life. There wasn't a day that would go by that they wouldn't think of uh, Kathy, who had been killed in such a horrible manner. And they, they wanted something to be done about it, could never be satisfied that this is just kind of written off as, well, you know, some murders don't get solved kind of deal. And to be fair, the Brighton police never did have that attitude. Now, they ran into substantial roadblocks, but particularly with uh, Mark Henderson at the, at the end, it was full speed ahead, no matter what the verdict may be. We got to this, and it worked. Oh, my God, how rare a situation in which all of this that happened 40 years ago comes back and is finally concluded in this manner so that we can look at each other, hug one another, and say, it's over. It's over. And for me, that's where I leave the case. The abatement is something else. It's a legal process that is mandatory, but it doesn't change what happened in the uh, investigation, in the court trial, and most of all, in the conviction and the sentencing. That's the way this ended. And that's what I will take away from it. That's where I close the book. And I hope that those in the Schlosser family have come to feel the same way. There is no looking around and saying a winner or a loser. If if you look at this and you end the story at the conviction, the guilty verdict, which is where it should end, then you have to say the winner was justice. Justice was served.